This episode of the DGMG podcast, that's my podcast, is brought to you by Oribi, O-R-I-B-I, O-R-I-B-I, Oribi. Here's the cool thing about them advertising on this podcast, by the way, just a quick note, it's working. So a bunch of people actually went and used Oribi and signed up and started having success with the product. So they came back and they were like, Dave, can we keep sponsoring your podcast? And I said, yes, it's always great when it works out that way. And Oribi is awesome because they are providing an alternative, finally, an alternative to Google Analytics. And it's the alternative that a lot of people have been waiting for. I talked to a lot of marketers and Google Analytics is one of those things that you love it or hate it. And so if you're in that other camp or just looking for something new, you should go and check out Aribi. They have customers like Sony, Audi, Panasonic, and Pizza Hut. And it's great because once you connect Aribi to your website, you can really quickly analyze what's going on and see how people engage, not just with a form on your website, but with everything. CTAs, forms, pop-ups, images, videos, landing pages, and it works across all the domains that you have. And you can even see specifically what is leading to conversions. And marketing is ultimately just a game of let's go do more of what's working. So Aribi can help show you that. And the best part is it happens all automatically, right? You're busy, I'm busy. Using Aribi is like having a marketing analyst on your team working 24 hours a day that can give you what you need on demand. And whether you have a new campaign running, new ad creative, new landing page, there's so many things that we are testing and want to be measuring daily. And it's really easy to do that with Aribi, even if it's something like you just shipped a new pillar piece of content that the team has been working on for months and you want to know how that content is impacting conversion, you can do that. Just log into Aribi. You'll learn how people are interacting with all of your marketing. And in no time, you'll get better at prioritizing what's working. And so you can throw out what's not and double down on the stuff that actually is having an impact. Plus, it's super simple to set up. They've got great customer service and tech support in case you need any help. And if you're like me, I'm sending a million questions in to customer support, but maybe that's just me. You can check them out at aribi.io. That's O-R-I-B-I dot I-O. And if you do aribi.io slash DGMG, and you sign up through that link, you'll get 20% off any plan or punch in the promo code DGMG. You'll get 20% off any plan Oribi.io, O-R-I-B-I.io. Check them out and say bye-bye to Google Analytics. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Lemon Pie. They're the ones who produce this show for me. They're awesome at what they do, and I can't recommend their work enough. They make it super easy for me, and I know that they can help you too if you want to launch a podcast strategy for your brand. Check them out at www.lemonpie.fm and tell them I sent you. That's www.lemonpie.fm. Tell them that I sent you. All right, let's get into this episode. Hey, I'm Dave Gerhardt, and you're listening to the DGMG Podcast. This is the place where I share marketing lessons and learnings every week. My guest on this episode is Kyle Lacey. He's CMO at Lessonly. Okay, so you're, the PSA is that you, uh, you're the first B2B marketing leaders guest to have uh, been vaccinated last night and uh, you're not feeling so great. So that's your PSA. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I, I feel all right. I've got enough caffeine in me that I think right. it's evening out. Well, I'll give you an easy one to get you started. Tell me about, uh, for people who don't know, what does Lessonly do as a business? Lessonly is training, coaching, and enablement software for sales and customer service teams. So whether you're scaling a sales team or trying to manage a huge call center, 
use us to help with coaching and practicing on frontline sales. Awesome. And what's the business model? Like what's the go-to-market? Not from a specific marketing channel, but like what's the business model look like? Yeah, business model is, I mean, it's it's recurring revenue like most software companies, but we have a commercial segment and we have an enterprise segment. And the commercial segment's usually software, high-growth software. Enterprise tends to be financial services, industry, or uh, insurance and telecom. Got it. And do you have like, are those two different funnels on your website? Like if, if I signed up to use Lessonly, I would get, I would go into some type of like freemium funnel and then you have the sales led motion on the other side? No, it's all sales led. There's no free trial. We, you don't get to drop into a Lessonly account. You can raise your hand that you're an enterprise customer prospect, but it's mostly the same. Got it. And so how does marketing fit? This is one of my favorite questions to hear people answer. How does marketing fit into Lessonly's business strategy? Like what's the purpose of marketing? Generating revenue and supporting the brand. We are revenue first. And because of that, we're, we're allowed to do cool things like launch e-commerce brands as an example. So marketing's revenue first across net new as well as expansion. Okay. So it's great. Marketing, you know, I, the reason I asked that is because it's great to hear from so many good CMOs about, Hey, we, we focus on revenue. Can you go a step further in breaking down like how how that plays out from a marketing perspective? Because and maybe even like coaching your answer because most people will say, well, like how do I own that as a marketer? So share some of your metrics if you can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, direct source. We especially for our commercial segment when it's quicker sales cycles, about forty five to sixty days. It's we are direct sourcing the revenue, right? On the enterprise side, it's pipe gen, but it's all who sourced it initially. Now, marketing lessonly's. A little interesting because we have outbound BDRs, SDRs live in marketing. So we actually support a lot of top of funnel because we are so sales led as a go to market model. I think that's great. I, I've changed my opinion on, and I, I haven't, I haven't had a BDR team, but like, I think so much of the misalignment between the revenue piece and sales and marketing is because of the handoff. And it's like if you're if you're going to own the meeting bookers, then you can sign up for more of the number. And and I remember, I think you've told me this in the past, but I, it sounds like you, you, I mean, not that you'd say it on this podcast, but it sounds like you like having that motion. I do. Well, it forces alignment. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday with the, the CRO at Outreach, Anna. You, it forces alignment between sales and marketing. It forces you as leaders to communicate with each other because you can't have miscommunication when you're doing a handoff, especially when outbound BDRs live in marketing as well. And it unites top of funnel. It just makes sense to me. Is the whole sales team then in closing roles and like you own everything until that point? Yeah, they, they have a self-source number, like a percentage of their quota needs to be self-sourced on their part by segment. So commercial has a little bit bigger than enterprise, but most of it is owned by marketing. So when marketing owns a BDR, some people say that that can have a negative impact on career growth. And and typically one of the ways, one of the reasons people push back on BDRs in sales is, is for that reason. What's your take? We are very lucky that we sell enablement software. So we actually, from a career pathing perspective, our BDRs can choose whether they want to go the account executive route or whether they want to go like a marketing route. I would argue that BDRs living in marketing give people more opportunity because if you live in sales, it's pretty much the chosen path that you would go in an account executive. But when you live in marketing, you could go account manager, you could do field marketing, you could go velocity AE role or whatever. Our philosophy is if you spend time, if you spend a year in the role or a year and a half in the role, we would love for you to at least choose a path and we'll help you do that. And if Lessonly does not have that availability, then we're going to help you find a company that does. 
I think you're right. Like it, it does make sense. You you get exposure to the marketing team in addition to sales. They're, they're not going to say, oh, because the BDRs reported in marketing, uh, Chris, you can't become an AE. <laughs> no, it's like that's still the path. There's just more options on the other side. It does, it, and I will say it does make it more difficult because you. I've had to spend a lot of time coaching the BDRs on how you network into the, the sales team. Like you should be spending time with account executives. You should be talking to the management team because if they're not in there on a daily basis, it's harder for sure. It doesn't, but I feel like it gives them more opportunity. Like some of them might love to be field marketers. I mean, it's a great role too. Okay. This is good. We're peeling back the layers here. How many people are on your team and let's go through the breakdown of like how it's split up. Yeah. So we have 40, around 40 on the team and it's broken down into three business units, inbound, outbound and marketing strategy slash expansion. So inbound is everything that hits the website, inside sales, inbound SDRs live on that team, demand gen, MarTech, paid, vendor support, everything that hits the website, basically. Outbound's all of our BDRs. So commercial BDR, enterprise BDRs, and then the marketing strategy and brand side is kind of the internal agency. So designers, web dev, as well as field marketing, campaign support, and customer marketing. Nice. Okay, let's pause and go into this. Because what I love is you made up a team structure. It's made up. This isn't in somebody's framework. It's not a framework that says like, well, you need three product marketers. You need two demand gen marketers. You need, no, you took what you had, the ingredients, and then you gave them labels and you're like, this is the team. Yep. I mean, product marketing lives in revenue enablement. We're not traditional, lastly, when it comes to that. And is revenue enablement one of those three? Is it a subset of one of those three teams? No, this is a completely separate team that has like sales engineers, product marketing, and enablement. And do you are you responsible for that team? No. Whoa, interesting. That's cool. Okay, so it makes sense because it's like the sales engineer to have that sales engineer expertise type of thing. What? Why does it work to have product marketing not be part of your org here? It was mostly the leadership. Megan Brazina, who runs revenue, it's a revenue effectiveness team, but it made more sense that the product marketer would live under her based off of how we do our planning and product launches and stuff like that. It's also not a strong suit of mine. It's probably at the bottom of my list when it comes to my ability to run product marketing. So it just made more sense in our structure. Yeah, no, it's great. And so if you have inbound, outbound, and this kind of strategy piece, do you have one leader of each of those functions? Yeah, so I have three direct reports. So you have somebody that runs inbound, somebody that runs outbound, and somebody that runs the brand strategy stuff. Yeah. And then they have managers under them, depending on team size. How often do you meet with them? We meet as marketing execs, I guess you could call it, every Monday. We meet with our managers every Monday. And then I have one-on-ones with each of them every week. You went from doing marketing at a like running marketing for a VC firm to having a team of 40 people. <laughs> It's awesome. What have you learned as the team has grown? Because like when you went there, there there wasn't how how big was the marketing team? Less than ten? Yeah, eight. So what's the what's your while I can get you on your vaccine fumes? Uh, what's <laughs> what are the what are the big lessons? What are the big like you know having a yeah. glass of wine or whatever lessons from going from eight to forty? Well, number the biggest mistake that I made at Lessonly was not hiring product marketing sooner. I had an opportunity to hire an amazing leader in towards the end of 2017 and I and I reallocated the budget somewhere else. And as we started to move up market, 
the lack of product marketing hurt us when it came to industry and messaging and all that. So that's number one. Number two... Wait, wait, wait. Let's pause on that for a second. What is great product marketing then in, in that world? Like what did you, what, what did you outcomes. need? We didn't have any business. That, nobody was working on business outcomes. Like Lessonly helps save a million dollars if you move training online, as an example. We didn't have anybody thinking about those business outcomes. And as we started talking to larger companies, they are ne- it's needed. And so... That would be my advice to anybody in roles where you are, you're a million, $2 million in ARR is that work as proactively as possible to get business impact or business outcome numbers from your customers as soon as you can. And that was, and we just didn't have anybody thinking about it. I've never heard anybody articulated that way, but like, I like it because it's a very specific piece. It's not like, well, great product marketing is great messaging and the website. And it's like, no, because it's true, right? The more you sell to bigger companies, they just want to know, hey, before I waste my time talking to you, prove it. Oh, you helped X customer just like me, same profile as me, generate, you know, save $2 million. Okay, cool. I'll take a meeting. Yeah. And we, and I, I spent a ton of time early on doing personas and use cases, but once it was done, nobody was updating them or looking at them or so just that's, I wish that I would have hired her in 2017. When you say go and get business outcomes, like how do you actually go and do that? Right. Cause they, it's not like they control everything. They can't just go make a customer magically have a million dollars in sales. Well, you, you need to, and we're doing this now, you need to have some type of, I hate this word, but framework that you work with the account managers, like your CX team. And you need to understand what the business outcome of the software actually is. You know, Privy, you guys have it on the front page. Lessonly as a training and coaching software, we have to dig pretty deep with the customer to be able to understand what impact. It could be cost savings. It could be churn went down, like employee churn went down, especially if you're a huge call center that matters. You know, hold time or call resolution time, like all that stuff. And then make sure that the account managers understand what they should be asking on a quarterly basis for their customers and they feel okay asking it. And so we've had to spend just a lot of time with the team understanding what it means. I mean, we've hired Forrester to go in and do an economic impact report on two of our customers, and that helps. But that's also a very enterprise type motion. How have you changed from a. Um from a what you do as a marketing org from eight people to 40 people, right? You you mentioned one thing, but like commissioning Forrester to do a report when the team is eight people and you're a couple million in revenue is probably not your move, but now it is. What are some other things like that that have kind of shifted over time? I think it's just the of uh, how we go get customers. I think the shift has been, we've had to understand how to make the transition between one segment, which is a velocity segment commercial, which has a pretty fast sales cycle, to having two segments, which are completely opposite. And I think the mistake we made early on is that we tried to retrofit our commercial go-to-market model to enterprise, and it just broke constantly because it wasn't high volume. You have to have some type of named account model. I'm not going to utter the words, uh, the acronym ABM or ABX on this call because I, I think it's just a load of crap. But we needed a named account model. and I'm, that, I'm an ABF guy, which is account-based feelings. That's what I go with. <laughs> I like that better. <laughs> you can take that. I like that. I'm going to do that. I, I might steal feelings. that from you. Because we I'm sell to people. I'm going to put that people. in my LinkedIn profile. These are people, not leads. Account, a contact-based marketing. Human. That's Human. a real good observation because um, I think it might have been in Jason Lemkin's book, From Impossible to Inevitable. They talk about like when you're building a you know a high-growth kind of SaaS inbound machine, 
when you have sales, one of the mistakes that you can make is not specializing early enough. And that's even true in a marketing perspective, which is like, you can't just take, if you have this high volume inbound motion, you're not just going to like magically get, you know, named accounts that some will, some will go through that funnel, but like you have to actually go and get people. And in order to go and get people, you need to do a different type of marketing and it needs to be measured differently. And you got to take the risk. One, one thing we did, which was a mistake was we only hired a couple of enterprise account executives early on. And you got to hire at least four if you're going to go for it. And it is a risk. It is, that isn't, it's expensive and you're hiring four SDRs to support them as well. Yeah. So that, I mean, you just got to take the leap if you're going to do it and you've got to focus on specific use cases. One thing, you can't boil the ocean. The other thing was we spend a lot more time on customer marketing now as we've grown because expansion revenue is almost more important than net new once you hit a certain revenue number. Can you go into that? Because I think the term customer marketing still, I see, I talk to so many SaaS companies, the term customer marketing still means send a newsletter and postcards. <laughs> and yeah, well, uh, the, okay, so this is fairly new for us. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna throw out how I'm thinking about it right now, subject to change. We moved one of our seasoned account managers, she was like the 10th employee at Lessonly, over to a customer marketing role. So number one, try to get a CX person to be your customer marketer, number one. Uh, number two, focus on community first. So we focused on making our customer advisory board experience great. We focused on our user conference being great. And then we built out a really, really experience-driven mobile app that we call Lamination that is basically a community app that you can get on as a customer and you can talk to other customers. And we have, I think we have 600 people on it now, 400 customers, 400 companies, 600 people. And then the fourth is drive expansion revenue. We haven't gotten there yet because there's a lot of backend stuff you have to do to be able to track all of that. But the goal would be that the, the customer community, the events, the content, all that stuff helps with expansion revenue and helps decrease churn, logo retention. Yeah. Okay. This is great. I found what our LinkedIn clip is going to be. It's going to be a good your, the rant on customer marketing. I think it's great. Hey, real quick, I just want to plug the DGMG community. You can go and join it right from my website, davegerhardt.com. By the way, if you haven't been there, davegerhardt.com, you'll have all the links. That's how you can go join. But DGMG, the community, it's my members-only B2B marketing community. In the last year, it's grown to over 2,500 members. And it's incredible because it's like having a sounding board outside of your company, which is so valuable as a marketer. So inside of the group, people are getting feedback. They're getting recommendations on tools. They're getting campaign ideas. They're, sometimes people even message me to post anonymous questions about salary and hiring and interviewing. And I'm in the group every single day like sharing my own stuff too. There's 10 to 12 new posts every day. If you join, you can go all the way back as far as the group goes to see all of the content from the last year. And I don't want to oversell it, but I know that you'll see our from it instantly. It's $10 a month to join. You can cancel at any time. So there's really no risk. And you can kind of, you can always DM me and tell me if you thought it was a fraud. So it's $10 a month to join. There's 2,500 members in there. It's become an incredibly valuable part of my workflow as a marketer. And I know it will for you too. So you can go and sign up at davegerhart.com. There's a link you'll see over there to join the DGMG community. All right, let's get back to this episode. So this is where it falls down in a lot of companies though, which is like, 
I know how to do, or I know what to do in order to get meetings for the sales team. I don't really know the equivalent of doing expansion, like customer marketing, like and getting meetings and that it's harder to make that motion repeatable. But it sounds like you're taking a like a entirely different approach to like we're gonna try to measure all of these touches and see what influences revenue. It's not like you're just saying like, hey Kyle, you should book a meeting to buy more stuff. It's like this ongoing, it's almost like brand marketing in some sense. Yeah, yeah. But because we actually had expand well, we still do. We have expansion BDRs. And their focus is selling into our largest install bases. And like it kind of works, but it's not like it doesn't work like you would an outbound BDR. So you have to build that community element. And you know this as well as I do that you have to have that foundation early on. So you have your raving customers. And if they're more involved in the community, they're going to be more apt to do customer references or do referrals. A lot of times people just like create a referral program and that's customer marketing. And that's just a load of bullshit. It's like, I don't want to become a customer and like using your product. And then you just randomly email me and say, hey, we need you to do a customer reference. You got to have more around it. I think one of the best things a SaaS, a B2B SaaS company could do for customer marketing is to build a community, but not, not make it just about the product, right? It's not just a forum to learn more. Like, what if it was like, hey, when you buy Lessonly, you get access to our members only site. And like, then you're selling somebody software, but you're also selling videos, podcasts, templates, guides. It's the freaking exact thing I'm doing with DGMG. But for like, if you staple that onto a SaaS company, match that up to your product. So if you sell financial technology, have a community where a financial technology we know person would go and hang out. Yeah. So we have like llama loot, like we have games in it. We have content in it. We like, we haven't gone as far as to do the template and stuff because it's a mobile app. But yeah, I mean, that's, that would be the direction for sure. But like the reason it works is because there's value there beyond lessonly trying to sell me more stuff. Right. Like our product, (laughs) like our product roadmap, right? Like I, it's more about how can you introduce peer customers to each other? The reason why your expansion motion isn't working is because you can't just have a BDR hop up every three months and be like, and try to book a meeting. There needs to be more there. (laughs) Right. (laughs) How do you measure marketing? Because what you have is interesting. You have three funnels, right? You have commercial inbound funnel, you have outbound funnel, named accounts, ABM, and then you have customer marketing. You can't just have one lead goal for the team and be like, go do your thing. How do you have goals as a team and then and like your goals as the CMO? So the customer marketing, marketing strategy team, they're way more brand oriented right now. So it's more, and we could talk about how I think about that because we don't really measure brand at Lessonly. But on the demand gen side, we divide out the metrics by segment. So you have an enterprise revenue number, you have an enterprise pipeline number, and you have an enterprise meeting number. And under that is the website and the outbound team. Got it. Do like the other marketing teams basically just have to support each team? Yeah. So you can think like the marketing strategy team is kind of the supporting function within like they have campaigns are managed out of the marketing strategy team, the brand teams on there. So they're doing all of the deck support and event support and design support. And then you've got the two funnels, inbound and outbound. I think it's great. It's like the marketing strategy is like, that's almost like the defense on your team. And then the other two teams are offense, right? Like Yeah. So field mar- we'll build out field marketing by segment under that team. There'll be campaign support under that team at some point. There'll be more customer marketing build out. 
And then the brand team will start evolving into an agent, an internal agency. Are you mentioned we don't measure brand? No. <laughs> I don't know if people, are people going to be able to see this video? Because you got very excited for some. No, I'm, not, I'm asking you a question, man. <laughs> oh, no. So, okay. The way that I think about it is, so when I look at my budget, our spend quarter to quarter, 75% of our spend, 70 to 75%, depending on the quarter, goes towards demand gen and is measured. And we look at an ROI model on that demand gen spend. 25 to 30% of it goes to brand. And we, I don't care what the hell happens. It's mostly, and that allows my team to be irrational. It allows them to be creative. It allows them to do things like launch an e-commerce brand or do a board game or the Golden Llama stuff, or it just allows them to be more creative. So now the only way we can do that at Lessonly is because we generated revenue first. I didn't come in and say I was going to build a brand and then generate revenue. I've got a seat at the table. We support the revenue so I can make decisions like, yeah, we're going to spend X amount of money on on a Forrester event. or So all of our field marketing, all of our customer marketing, all of our brand stuff goes into that 30% bucket from a spend perspective. If you're listening to this, you just got schooled. Pull over. <laughs> well, but some, something to keep in mind is that you, the one thing that we did early on at Lessonly, which I highly recommend, and our CFO is brilliant for it, is that he speaks to the board with one CAC LTV, like one I don't want to get too deep in this, but one number across sales and marketing. So the board is, it's everyone spend together, not by channel. So it allows business unit owners to be a little bit more creative in how they reach their number. That seems to be more common, but for some reason, marketers are obsessed with the CAC per channel. And I just like having been on the other side of that, they do not care. It's an overall blended number to look at the efficiency of the business, period. Not whether It's your job to know whether Facebook or LinkedIn is more efficient. A, that's more of like a ROAS number than it is CAC. But anyway, what do I know? <laughs> well, I mean, I, look, man, I, unless you miss your revenue number. If you miss your revenue number, they're going to dig, yeah. right? But here, here's the thing. What you said is important, which is you're, you said we don't measure brand, but I actually, I guarantee you measure brand in that you know how many people go to your event or listen to your podcast. So you do have, you have metrics in order to quantify them. The way that I interpret this is that there are brand activities that you are not treating as direct response channels where you're looking at the ROI of that channel. So you're not looking at the ROI of sending out board games. And because you're saying, however, on the direct response channels, the 70% of your budget that is demand gen, you are measuring that. That's the difference. Yeah. We, and we measure one number as a whole for the year, right? So, it, so we do need to make sure that brand is not overspending. But from a metric standpoint, like we've sent our CEO wrote a book two years ago. And we've sent close to 7,000 of them out. I have no idea what it did. No clue. But what I do know is that companies will hire our CEO to come talk about leadership before they're ever customers. And to me, that's all I need to know is that that because my team's so good at this stuff, like we're not sending, I'm not sending water bottles. Like I'm not sending t-shirts. It's, it's custom stuff. This is the hard part. It's like you don't, you have to do it. And once you do it, you ha it's a feeling. And I've said this over and over. People, like it's hard to understand until you've done it. You have to feel it. And by the way, you're not under pressure 
to justify it because the CEO has felt it, the CFO has felt it, right? They see the messages that customers are saying. And so they're not asking you what the ROI of having the CEO write a book is. No, now if nobody's mentioning it, like then yeah, they're gonna be like, well, why did we even do this? But when they get emails- Yeah, hey Kyle, how did that book go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what, like what's going on with the book that I wrote? <laughs> but they're getting, e- like the board's getting emails from people or you have enterprise customers coming to events when we didn't have a freaking pandemic and they're, they're just gushing about it. Like that type of stuff you can't pay for because experience is everything, right? You and I have talked about that before. It's like, it's the only thing that makes us relevant as marketers is the experience somebody's having, right? And that's 100% what we strive for at Lessonly is just a positive experience. Do you think you you will be at a place in the future like where you would try to quantify the brand? For example, you know, you talk to like a Bill Masitis from like during his time at Slack, they're running quarterly, you know, brand awareness surveys, aided versus unaided to see if the brand efforts are going to provide some lift. Like, do you think you'd do that in the future? Yeah, we've started going down the route of like direct and measuring some of the direct traffic. But if we, when we hire, if and when we hire a PR firm, I'll probably go that route because we'll be spending quite a bit of money on that. And they will probably have some tool to help us do that, like a meltwater or whatever anybody uses to measure brand. Survey Monkey. Survey Monkey. I was going to pull this out because I think it's a good resource. This book, it's, it's, it's got to be one of the worst titles for a book. Uh, Data-Driven Marketing, the 15 metrics everyone in marketing should know. But I do do my homework for people who think that I'm just you know full of like <laughs> half-witty things on LinkedIn. And... You know, what you said is really good. So in this book, they have a good breakdown. And this is like very like Fortune 500 CMO type things. But like the breakdown of a budget is we live in this where we think that it, when, you, when you operate as you have one budget that's this 100% blended number, like they have this broken down to like, hey, you should spend 50% of your budget on demand gen, 15% on tools and tech. And it's like, that's what you've given thought. You don't just have one big number. You're like, here's how we're going to crack this in different categories. Do you have other buckets besides, is it just split up 70-30 or is it? Uh, It's just split up 70-30 right now. What I'm playing with is like a uh, test budget. So taking 10 to 20% of the budget every quarter to just do tests, which we haven't done in the past. But outside of that, it's it's pretty much 70-30. And and keep in mind, that is across headcount as well. So we, we do percentages of people's salary goes to which channel they support. So like uh, our director of outbound salary is spread out over commercial and enterprise segments because she spends half of her time on each. Got it. From a budget perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. And a CAC perspective for your CFO. Okay. Take us into your tech stack. If there's things that are, that you're okay sharing. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, Marketo, Salesforce, where, where should we start? We have a lot. (laughs) Let's go from the website in. Okay. So the website, of course, the normal, like Google analytics, we use Hotjar. I'm sure there's other ones that the team uses right now. We're WordPress. We have a WordPress site. Flywheel for hosting. And then we have uh, Marketo. A lot of our data management on the back end is DataFox, Clearbit. We have Zoom Info for contact stuff for the outbound team. On an attribution, we have Visible. And then Marketing Automations, Marketo. We don't have any from like dynamic content or ABM plays or anything like that right now. WordStream for paid probably forgetting people. I'm sorry for those people listening that I'm forgetting you. <laughs> drift. We use Drift. Which is interesting to hear you say that you have this growing 
ABM enterprise type business, but you're not doing any of that personalization stuff. We do, but I don't call it ABM. We use Postal for our direct mail, and each account rep has each AE and SDR has a budget in Postal to send personalized stuff. We have playbooks and account plans. I just don't believe in this idea that you need a mass ad campaign to like sweeten people up. And I know I'm probably just butchering all the ABM platforms like value statements right now, but I don't believe in this air cover. I believe in, you know, the 20 people you need to contact at a company. How can we build a model to get in front of them without having to buy a bunch of display ads? And so how, how do you do that? Like, is it about arming, arming the reps with actually valuable stuff to reach out with? Like, hey, here's a copy of the book. Yeah, so they have this whole, they have a suite of things they can choose from in Postal and they are given monthly budgets. And then what we're trying to do is be a little bit more focused on account planning, especially in enterprise. So right now we're just struggling with how do you do that research up front? So an SDR and AE aren't spending like four hours doing a bunch of research on a company when we can kind of do that up front for them. But outside of that, they just, the goal is get them to a pilot or get them uh, moving towards a contract. And then we set the playbooks up in that way for the enterprise segment, for sure. Commercial is a little bit different. Yeah, no, that's cool. I, I like the idea of, I'm not familiar with Postal, but I like the idea of like, we'll pay for it. We will fill it with stuff, but it's, you get to choose how you're going to do it. And I'm assuming then there's an easy way for you can then on your end track pipeline from that source. Yeah. yeah, And all of it's measured in attribution models and stuff on the back end. How do you spend your time these days as a CMO of a team of 40 people? You're looking at it, man. Meetings. This is not a meeting. This is entertainment, edutainment. (laughs) I know. I, okay. So I, I could give you Right now, it's a lot of meetings. In a perfect world, I'd be spending at least half the time at least thinking about the end of the year into next year, doing more strategy. But right now, it's people management. I think that's what I've learned growing a team. And I understand the CMOs that I've worked for in the past on why sometimes they were moving from meeting to meeting (laughs) because they were. And you're putting out a lot of fires. And um, you're building a team and a team of 40 people is a lot of personalities, a lot of opinions. And I spend a lot of time learning how to be empathetic, which does not come naturally for me, honestly. Especially over Zoom. Right, right. I'm the worst It's been a struggle. It has been a struggle for me. It's interesting because it's like, you know, right now you got to be in meetings all day. Yeah. But it'd be nice to have half the day open to be going for a walk and thinking about you know, how are we going to grow the number 30% next year? It's hard. It's, it's hard to be in the weeds doing it and thinking about long, you know, the balance of short-term and long-term is super hard. Yeah. I mean, in a perfect world, most of my time would be spent thinking of 2022 right now. Right. And I need to be better at that. You know, in the world of zoom, it's really easy to do back to back, which is not good for the most part. How often do you try to meet with everybody on the team? Like, all 40 people? Yeah, once a quarter. Once a quarter I meet with, I'd spend 30 minutes with each person and we do like a start, stop, continue. Like what were their wins for the quarter? And then what should we start doing? What should we stop doing? What should we continue? And I do that with every person. Like wins personally and then stop, start, continue as an org? Yeah. Nice. That's good. That gives it more structure other than like, how you doing? What's up? Yeah, yeah. And and you learn things that you didn't know about, which has been very, very valuable, especially the past year where you're not seeing people on a daily basis. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, I was going to mention this before, but like so much of the job, I think when I learned the most is, or what I've learned is, it's kind of like a job of like 
triangulating all these things, you're the only person that's kind of talking in between everybody. And so you're like, huh, I hear the way Kyle's kind of frustrated about this. And I hear the way Sarah's kind of frustrated about this. I got to tell the two of them that they need to grow up and talk to each other. You know, like you have to be the one to do that. I mean, do you do it? Do you meet with everybody on the team? Yeah, I I have a much smaller team than you do. Like I, I meet with everybody. I meet with my direct reports every other week and my and everybody else once a month. And the one-on-ones that we have now are different because I have two direct reports and they both have a pretty good amount of experience and like are very self-sufficient and we have a small team. And so like I've pulled back, I think the first six months, seven months of the job, like new job, new team and COVID where everybody went remote, we were talking daily. Yeah. But now I've tried to like, I kind of did some reflection a couple months ago. I'm like, I got to let, like, just let go a little bit. Like, this is good for me and good for them. And I think it's just different. I think it's every, every team needs to be managed differently. There is no one cookie cutter thing. It's like, you know, everybody needs to be coached differently, right? It's like some people like the challenge, some people don't. Some people like the rah rah, some people don't. Like, like, here's an example. I used to go to, like, back when I would still go to gyms, I'd go to a CrossFit gym and I, I love working out. I hated, and I'm a pretty intense person, but I hated when somebody would come up to me and be like, come on, come on, come That's just not, that's not how you get me fired up in that context. And it's like the same is true for understanding people at work. Yep. I highly recommend predictive index, by the way. And that's how I've kind of set up my, yeah. you know, it's like me a too. desk or Myers-Briggs because I know there's one manager, there's one direct report of mine who wants feedback like on everything, man. And I know that I need, like at first I was like, you don't need to ask me, like, just go do it. But I realized that that was her communication style. And once I started giving feedback, like, like her productivity skyrocketed. And then there's other people that I know they're high D, high I on disc. They don't need me talking to them weekly, right? They are good. They're good to go. You just need to make sure you're supporting them. They're even like, what's this dude's problem? Right. <laughs> like, why is he talking to me so much? Like, don't micromanage me. But for me, that predictive index, it has been life-changing for me as a manager because you can set people up based off of personality types. Potentially, you could build projects and campaigns, squads off of people that have different personality types and play off of each other. And if you're not doing that, it's very hard. It's very hard to manage. We used it at Drift. We don't use it right now at Privy, but what we did is just did the 16 personalities. Like You could use any of them, right? I think the point is getting data on someone's personality type because we're we're all not the same and so I am very creative don't really care about the process I got a new idea let's drop everything and do it where you know you might be working with someone who needs to process things needs to prep I went through even on this podcast my nature is like oh I love riffing this is what we do we don't need a prep call you know you're similar but I now that I've been getting other guests that I don't know personally a bunch of people have been like can we do a prep call and normally I'm like hell no we're not doing a prep call <laughs> But but like, I'm trying to be mature enough with the right guest. Not everybody can get a prep call, but with the right guest to be like, okay, maybe they need this in order to do a better job. And it's very similar to work, which is like, oh, that's not going to go well if I just, you know, blow up someone's day with three new ideas. I got to think about how I deliver this. So it's, it's even, it's helped me personally and as a manager of the team. Yeah. And you can use strength finders, Myers-Briggs, like any of them, all of them work. What's something that Younger Kyle Lacey, you know, you're your marketing guy. What's something that you disagreed with then, but now that you're CMO of a 40 person company, you have changed your opinion on or see and believe? 
Cause it's like, it's like being a parent. It's like, you know, there's things like before kid, like you catch yourself doing things to your kids. You're like, Oh, that's why my parents did that to me. <laughs> yep. I was almost fired twice from exact target. And, uh, if I could tell you why just real quickly, but I was hired at exact target because I wrote a book called Twitter marketing for dummies. And I was doing a lot of speaking on Twitter and Facebook and they hired me to be on the thought leadership team, marketing research team. And we spoke at conferences. I didn't really have a filter with what I would send out on Twitter, right? So one day I was in London getting on a Delta flight. My TV was the only one that didn't work on the entire plane. So I took a picture of the TV and I shared, hey, thanks, Delta. It was kind of in jest. Thanks, Delta, that my TV is the only one that works. Now what am I going to do on this flight? So landing in LaGuardia, turn on my phone, and I'm just getting text messages and emails our system went down. Our social monitoring software went down when I was on the flight. And my tweet was the only one that came through the, the software to the head of social at Delta. <laughs> so exact targets down. The head of social for Delta is forwarding my tweet to Tim Kopp, who's the CMO. And <laughs> I like Jeff Roars was my boss. If he hadn't stepped in, Tim would have probably fired me for sure. And then we had situations where I tweeted about something I disagreed with and we were in a deal. Like we were in a deal with that company. And I would get emails from the AEs saying, Hey, you need to take down this tweet. Like we're about to sign a contract with like um who's the the preacher in Texas, the massive he's a guru, self help guru, Joel Joel uh, Joel Osteen. Yeah. I tweeted about Joel Osteen because I'm, I'm very opinionated about religion. And we were in a deal with Osteen Ministries <laughs> for like hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that yeah, being so said, that was very long. I disagreed with the fact that Tim and Jeff and eventually Scott Dorsey were like, Kyle, you can't, you've got to tone it down because we are a brand, like we are a company. And I disagreed with that. And now that I'm at a company where I have younger people that also are very open online, I've learned why that's important to try to, not to regulate, but at least to have the conversations about you represent a company as well as yourself. And it's just very important that you think through that as you're sharing content. I was kind of being in your mid-20s and speaking at conferences, you know, you're like, oh, you know, I'm the best person, This is, which is not true at all. But you've had, I had to learn pretty quickly that you're part of a community and you're part of a company. It's not just you speaking at a conference and tweeting about email marketing open rates. And if you just shut up for a little bit, exact target will help you buy a house one day. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause it did. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I have, I have no idea what would have happened if Tim would have fired me. That would have of not course. been a good situation. Of course. You would have been writing clubhouse for dummies or something like that. Uh, what's your take about employee brand versus personal brand then? I try not to separate them. I mean, I am who I am. And now there is a line and I think it's just human decency, right? Like you shouldn't, especially this past year, it's a hard line because you have a lot of opinions out there. And as a company, it's just hard to try to figure out how you communicate some of those opinions in a way that's, that represents the entire community that you have, right? As a company. So for me, it's, if you feel comfortable doing it and sharing about your opinion, like you just need to understand what the consequences are if you if it's something that does not support the company vision and mission. And as long as you understand that and you understand the what could happen if it's 
something negative or whatever, then do what you want to do. I don't separate my personal and professional brand. I know you don't either. And I never have. And that's probably why I was almost fired twice. But you got to understand, like, I should have thought that through. And I wasn't mature enough to think that through. Like, Delta is our biggest social customer. You know, I probably shouldn't be tweeting about a negative experience with a brand that's our largest customer. Yeah, I think that's like, it's almost a ridiculous example. Like it's, it's hilarious because it's like <laughs> it's a, it's a huge a customer. Example. It's not like, you know, it, it's not like you're just being like completely egregious on social media and, you know, you know, posting, you know, pictures of you funneling beers and like, you know, doing so that that's an interesting lesson. But yeah, I agree with that philosophy. And, and I think, especially if you're in marketing today, like I think your job is to be especially as a marketing leader, if you don't think of part of your role as one of the spokespeople for the company, then you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong job. And, and I, I choose to use social media as a platform to do that because what we can, you and I have this advantage that CMOs 20 years ago didn't have, which is like, I can go direct to customers on, on social media. And so it can be a benefit to the brand if people also happen to follow you and, and like you. And I'm not in the market for Lesson Lee right now, but if I was... I would send you a note and be like, "Hey, I'm interested." That happens all the time. I think, I think the pros outweigh the cons. I do, I do think that a lot of people are they're not willing to go and take advantage of the upside. They're just too worried about the risk, and I don't think that that's the right mindset to take. Well, if you think about the sales process 20 years ago, think about it when you were at HubSpot, right? You go to dinners. Right, I would go to sales dinners, and we talk about the families. We would talk about what we like to do on the weekends. And why aren't we doing that online? Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me because you, you create relationships with customers, the human relationships, and that's what keeps people around. You can build the best software in the world, but if they don't like working with you because you're a terrible human being, they're going to churn. I don't care how good your software is. I think this is especially true for founders. I think if you're a marketer listening out there, I think like you're, you should have your founder, your founder should be active on LinkedIn and Twitter, especially in B2B not just sharing ps we're hiring ps our company's awesome but like they started this business because they're an expert in this industry they have some deep passion or knowledge or expertise nobody just rolled out of bed and started a b2b a venture back b2b saas company because it's fun you should be using them to your advantage as a marketing channel they should be the you know one of the mouth you know one of ideally the mouthpiece for the for the brand yeah and that's why max that's why our ceo wrote a book and it has nothing to do with the product. It has everything to do with his opinion on what it means to be a great leader and a good person. Like that is one of the best marketing we've ever created because we just give people books and we're like, hey, we're going to be in feature wars for the rest of our lives as marketers. Our competitors are going to be able to build whatever the hell we have. The only thing that is going to win a market is your ability to convince somebody that they want to be involved in your community, right? That's it. And I know community on marketing Twitter, hashtag marketing Twitter, whatever spun up recently. I know community is a big thing right now to talk about because there's a lot of good examples, but I saw it at exact target. HubSpot built an ungodly community. You have to do it if you want to win in the long run. You can't just have a huge engineering and product that can roll out features all the time. Right. But it needs to be done. People will still hear your advice and they'll still try to execute it in a self-serving way, which is like, oh, it's going to be the company branded community and we're just going to talk. No, right. the best way to do it is the reason HubSpot was so great at this is because they didn't create a community around how to use their marketing software. 
they you know came up with inbound marketing. They said, this is a way to do marketing. Are you with us? Yes, we're with you. Half of the people probably didn't even use HubSpot, but HubSpot became the resource. That was the blog that I was reading. Those were the templates that I was getting. I did not become a HubSpot customer until many years later. Yeah, so, right. Anyway, okay, we're going to wrap up because I want to make sure you get a couple minutes to get an orange juice or do whatever you got to do. Kyle, <laughs> this was fantastic. This is a great example of why have a good conversation with somebody. Don't have an interview. Don't have next question, next question, next. Just actually give takes back. And I knew you were going to do that. So thank you for doing it. Quick plug for your stuff and, and where you were at before I hit pause on this thing. Come to lessonly.com. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. And uh, don't go to kylelacy.com because I haven't updated in four years. <laughs> You're, why would you say that? Everyone's going to go there now. <laughs> See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the DGMG podcast. If you learned anything new from this episode or got one valuable piece of marketing knowledge, it'd make my day to leave a review. I like to look at them. I like to see what people are thinking and hear about. Or if you didn't like it, leave me some feedback. Otherwise, I will talk to you on the next episode. See ya.